Good morning, church. It is an honor to be here with you this morning. I'm grateful that my family that's here with me, including my wife and uh, my four children, and also my mother who happens to be here as we've had a new ch child uh, in the family less than a month ago. And also I sing greetings from, bring greetings from Capitol Hill Baptist Church, where you pray for often. Um, your pastor is dear to us there. It is time that he served there and worked there with our body. And so I bring those greetings and know that we pray for you and that we pray for your elders here and the work of the gospel you have in, in this community in Arlington and, and throughout the world. So with that in mind, let's pray once again. Father, we come to you, Lord, asking that you teach us from your word this morning. Lord, I hide behind you and your word, Lord, that I will speak truth um, and that lives will be changed, that you will change me and others. But I thank you for the worship that's already taken place here this morning. God, so just dwell in our hearts as we want to hear from you, Lord, as we're faced with cold outside, Lord, warm our hearts on the inside with the truths of your scripture. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, what are you looking for? What are you looking forward to? Who or what are you trusting in? Are you thinking back to the year 2017, which we faced the last day of today on the 31st of December? Are you looking forward to a new year? Maybe this has not been the year you've wanted, or maybe you're celebrating what you've gone through and you're looking forward to what God's going to do in the new year. Does your life feel full? Does your life feel empty? Maybe you're an optimist or a pessimist, and so your life is half full or half empty. And you're asking yourself this morning, is there more? Maybe you're here this morning and you wonder, can I really trust Jesus? Last week, as I was listening, Pastor Mike preached from John chapter 6 to you. And he said that Jesus is the bread of life. And that putting your hope and believing in Christ moves those who believe from confusion to clarity. I hope that's been your week this week after being taught from that scripture and who is it about Jesus that He is the only source of eternal life? So today, on the last day of 2017, we'll look back together and reflect and prepare to start a new year. And as we look forward to 2018, often we are faced with and often tempted by and even encouraged to make, yes, New Year's resolutions. I know you're seeing them. I'm reading in the newspaper and the press or on your, on your smartphone about what's happening and what news resolutions you should have. Things that we do to better improve ourselves. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a New Year's resolution hater. You realize that you know yourself and there's nothing you can do that will change what you've done or what you're doing. And so you're a realist and in your mind you're just going to do nothing different than what you've already been doing. Because it's futile or ineffectual. As Christians in the church, we are further tempted beyond some of these normal things like exercise and more of it and dieting and reading and doing more, learning something new, a new hobby, a new something, time with family. We are pushed past that and we start looking about these spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, study, fasting, and giving. With that in mind, 
we're often tempted to, to think that these things are going to make us fuller and more happy and more close to God. My church small group this last year, we went through a book by, uh, which I recommend called The Habits of Grace by, by gentleman David Mathis. And this book's subtitle is Enjoying Jesus Through Spiritual Disciplines. Even though spiritual disciplines are good and they're required for us to walk in faith with Christ, do we often see them as the thing that we need to do to take us to a new level, to make us closer to God, to make us right with Him? And we're often tempted to do that. What if someone came up to you today or someone came to this pulpit and began preaching, aspiring that these spiritual disciplines, rituals, knowledge, or a higher spiritual experience was the real path to God? If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're asking, what is the path to God? Are we tempted to believe that following or ordering our lives under a certain group of rules, guidelines, regulations will help us please God more? As we think about these questions, turn your Bibles or the Bible provided to the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. And Colossians is in the New Testament. If you're looking in the Bible provided, it can be found on page 983. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 1 of Colossians, verses 15 through 23. God's Word says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the, of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The letter of the the letter of the epistle the letter or epistle to the Colossians written by Apostle Paul was to the church in Colossia, which is in modern day Turkey, kind of in central Turkey, central western Turkey. Paul wrote this letter to encourage them because of the threat of false teaching that the church was facing. Paul writes to them from prison when he pens this letter, and in chapter one he greets them and parts to them that Christ is all and enough. If you look at chapter two. He begins to tell them to not be fooled by extras and add-ons to the gospel which they received. Extras such as issues with dietary and Sabbath observations, circumcision rites, which tend to be from the Jewish faith, mystic powers, practices of asceticism, which is self-denial, 
And then treating Christ as just one of many powers, like angels and, and demons, that Christ is just one of these things. And Paul's saying, no, none of these things are true to the church in Colossae. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul concludes the letter with instructions to the believers on how to live in light of the fact that Christ is enough without the extras. Challenging believers to be transformed, putting on a new self, and seeking God's grace to live accountable to other believers. If we look in Colossians 3.16, Paul tells us that through admonishing one another in all wisdom and doing everything unto the Lord. And this includes in our daily lives as Christians. So this is the context of our scripture. And Paul's message to the Colossians and to us is that all things are secondary to Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is all. Because Jesus is enough. From this passage, there are three points that I want to make this morning to you and to me. The points are that Christ is first. He is before and above all. Second, that Christ is the fulfillment of God's reconciliation plan. And the third point is that Christ is the finisher accomplished for you. First point is Christ is first. And this is in verses 15 through 18. Christ is first and He is above all. So look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Who is the He in the first part of the, of the verse? In order to understand that, we have to look back at verses 13 and 14. Now we, we know it's Jesus, but, but how do we know? Verse 13 and 14 say, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is God's beloved Son. His name is Jesus. And He is both God and man. In John 1.18, we read, No one has ever seen God, the only God, and who, the, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus has made known the invisible God so that we can behold Him. Paul affirms the Gospel of John in John 1, 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And again in John 1, 14, where he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the only and exact image of the invisible God. God who we cannot see, even before us today, Christ came. We celebrated that at Christmas last week. And Jesus is the image of Him in the flesh. He is the firstborn, meaning that Jesus sits at the highest priority position. It doesn't mean that He was the first one born. We know that's not true. Jesus was born, what, 2,000 years ago. So we know that because we can also look at the passages we're in and just keep reading. A lot of times we are tempted to, to look at Scripture outside of itself in isolation and we could draw certain things from it that, that may or may not be true. So look at verse 16. For by Him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. So if we take verse if we take verse 15 apart from verse 16 we could say well Jesus was the firstborn of all creation that's false Jesus was firstborn but but he wasn't born 
He was with, with God in the beginning. Jesus is first. He sits above creation. He is not created. Jesus has always been. He was in the beginning with the Father. He was the Word by which God's Word used to create everything. Just like we look at Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. How did He do it? He did it by speaking His Word. The Scripture says in Genesis 1, throughout the whole chapter, it says, God said, and it was created. The Word was Jesus. The Son was there with the Father in the beginning. As the Word of God, Jesus was the Creator. That's what we're told here in our passage. All things in heaven and earth were created by Him. Things that we see, we look around, we see the celestial bodies, we see ourselves, we are a creation, we see the trees and nature, but also the things that we cannot see. We're taught in Scripture that there are realms and, and places that we cannot see, but God sees them and He controls them and makes them. These are thrones and dominions who have been given power and authority. So all these things were created through Him and for Him. Paul writes this to tell the Colossians that Christ created and is not only the creator of them, but He's over these powers and authorities. So Jesus is first over seats and positions of power and leadership, dominions, and those who have been given power and authority. As Christ created all power and authority, and we read this scripture, oftentimes we think about things that are outside of ourselves. But I ask you this morning, how do you use the power and authorities that you may have? Many of you may be in a position of power at work or at home. Many of you have that position because you're a supervisor. Sometimes it's a position because you're a parent. And so you have authority and power over your children. And to you children this morning, do you have younger siblings? Do you have other friends? Do you look up to people above you? If you do, these people have authority over you because you emulate them. You look at them. So to you children this morning, I ask you, are you leading those that are smaller than you, your siblings, your friends who look up to you? Are you leading them and pointing them to Christ? Or are you doing things that would, that would tend to pull them away from that? Remember that as you get bigger, there's always someone watching you. And so you have a power and authority based on that position. So when Paul writes that, that even these positions of power that we have within the family, within the workplace, within our lives and culture, Christ is over these things. I'm reminded of my daughter Anna, who's here this morning, who's 11. And oftentimes, she and, her, and, her, my, and my wife, Mary, are always on her about the things that she does and how her siblings are watching her. And so we are constantly reminding her of that because we want her to project that and lead them well. We, my, she tends to be the leader of our children, but not just because she's the firstborn, but because she has strong leadership tendencies, which are positive things to have, but we need to use them rightly. And so think about that no matter what position you have of authority and use your authority wisely. Now let's look at verse 17. 
It continues to affirm Christ as both God and man, saying, He is before all things. As man, Christ the man, we know historically that He was born a little over 2,000 years ago, as I said earlier. He was begotten of the Father. We read about that in John. In John 3.16, most of you know that verse. But He is before. Jesus is first because He is before He became man. Notice I do not use the word was. Or I did not use the word was. Because Jesus has always been. I can't say He was because He is. Just like in the Old Testament where we read that God is I am. He never was created. He's always been. And the same for Jesus. He is part of the triune God, which was prayed about earlier so beautifully in our prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, Christ is both God and man. And He came, and he came before all things. This is important because many teachings throughout history since Christ have pointed us that He was either all man or He was all God and He wasn't fully man. But this completely disagrees with all that we have in Scripture that tells us that He was completely both at the same time. It's just very difficult for our mind to understand and comprehend this. But Scripture paints this picture for us. In the second part of verse 17, Paul writes, In Him all things are all things hold together. Why is this such an important verse? It's an important verse because it tells us that Christ holds together His creation. Not that held it together, but that all things hold together in Him. So held means past tense, right? I'm a, I, in my job, a lot of times I have to look at words, and so I become a grammatical person that I never thought I would be. Often happens to us in our lives. And we look at these words and we're like, what does that mean? To hold versus held. And so to hold is active. That means you're doing it. It's being held. It's, it's not being held. It's, it's hold. The hold is happening right now. It's happened in the past and will happen in the future. Christ was doing that. J.I. Packer, who wrote a book, Knowing God, that many of you may have read. This is a great book. I also recommend this book. Contends with it like this. The Word had become flesh. A real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than before, but he had begun to be man. He was now, he was not now God minus something, some, some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He who made man was now learning what it felt like to be man. He who made the angels who became the devil, who made the angel who became the devil, was now in a state in which he could be tempted by the devil. And the perfection of his life, his human life, was achieved only by the conflict he had with the devil that we see played out in the Gospels and Scripture. Several years ago, I had a chance to hear J.I. Packer preach in person. And he stated it like this, the creator of the universe who lay in the arms of his mother, the Virgin Mary, was a helpless baby, yet still holds the universe together. And I can say held because that happened in past tense for us, but He still holds the universe together. Who can fathom this? Just over a month ago, my wife had our newest addition to our family, uh, my, my son Zane, and I was preparing to go to work one night. I work nights here in town at the Pentagon, 
And before I was going to work, I had picked him up and I was just holding him and he was awake. And he looked up at me and his eyes were wide and big and he's looking at me going, who are you? I don't know who you are. And I held him and he was helpless. He's in my hands and I'm staring down at my son and he's like, please don't drop me. Please don't let me hit the ground because I can't do nothing to keep, keep you from doing that to me. And he was helpless. And then I think about that with Christ. He's lying in the hands of his mother or his father and he's being held there and he's helpless as a human. Yet he's holding the universe together at the same time. Praise be to God. Think about, to think of you, to think of that just continually blows my mind when I think upon Christ that he did that and he came and became a babe, a helpless babe. And we're going to find out why. The other thing I would say about this is Jesus was holding that creation together. And so as we look around ourselves, we see creation. I'm amazed by it. I grew up in a rural area in western Kentucky. And I used to go out at night and, and look up at the stars. And I miss that living here inside the, the National Capital Region. And so as I look up here, I see a, a few satellites and you know, maybe the Big Dipper, the North Star, when I have the opportunity. But I can't see the, the, the galaxy and the stars the way I did. So I encourage you to get out and look at creation like that. Jesus put that together and he holds it together. When we look at birds, when we look at geese, I'm a, I'm a hunter, I like to shoot geese, but I also admire them. They fly in formations and they don't go to flight school for that. They've never been trained and other than, hey, kick you out of the nest and now you're gonna learn how to fly. And the next thing you know, they link up and they're flying amazing formations and they go hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles when they migrate. And swarms of starlings, the small little black birds that fly around late in the fall and they swarm and they move with the wind and they swirl and they stay together, they don't bump into each other. How is that ordered? How does that happen? And God created that and he made it and he holds it together. Or even schools of fish. Many of you like Finding Nemo. My family went to Disney World. And you watch the fish move and protect themselves by moving in a mass so that they're not one. They can't be picked apart by, their, by the predator fish. And God made that. And He organized it. And He holds it in place. Or even the moon. You look at the moon and its orbit. And what it does to the earth with tides and gravity. How can this be? I'm amazed by God's creation. Down to the molecular level with atoms. Many of you even study these things. How do we understand how these atoms hold together the very things we see and touch? And God made that, and He holds it together. If you're here this morning and you question God's hand in creation, consider your explanation for amazing order that we see around us. And I would ask you, how do you explain this order? The Scripture tells us that Jesus is first, and He holds together His creation. Look at verse 18. We see that Jesus is first and preeminent over the church, over time, over the resurrection, and everything. And He is the body, the church, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Was Jesus the first to be resurrected? Well, we know in the Old Testament that prophets had been resurrected and others were resurrected in Scripture. So what makes him the firstborn of the dead? It's because Jesus' death, unlike any other, overcame death permanently. 
for those who trust in Him. In Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 9, we can read that we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. What Christ accomplished was not a temporary solution like it was for the others that were resurrected. I'll use the example of Lazarus, who Jesus resurrected. Jesus, Lazarus became sick and he died. And then Christ called him out from the tomb. But Lazarus died again. His problem wasn't fixed. It was just fixed on that day. Instead, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, paving the way for the resurrection that will be experienced by believers, you and I who claim Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 6, chapter 6, verse 5, for we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In this, Jesus is first. How is he first? Philippians 2, which is another deep, deep passage talking about who Jesus is, tells us that God the Father, who has done this to bring glory to Himself. And that glory is what is due to the Father. It says that therefore God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In all these things that we've talked about and seen in Scripture, Jesus is first, before all and above all. My second point this morning is that Christ is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of what? Of God's reconciliation plan. Are you a planner? Do you have a plan for lunch this afternoon? Oftentimes I don't and I drive my wife crazy. A plan, do you have a plan for a trip later this year? Oftentimes I don't do that, driving my wife crazy. A plan to retire or some other long or short-term plan. Although your answers to these questions may be or probably are simply yes I do or no I don't, compared to God, all our best laid plans are just guesses because I don't know what's going to happen in the next moment of my life. As we say in the military, no plan ever survives first shot. So we make a great plan, and then something happens, and we have to change our whole plan. And this is the world we live in, because we are finite beings. A few years ago, I was coming home from work. I was living in Tampa, Florida, and I was tired. I'd worked a long day, probably about 10 hours, which was typical there. And I'm on the way home, and on my phone, my wife, the phone rings, and it's my wife. And she says, how are you? How was your day? I said, it was long and I'm tired. She said, good. Um, you have a choice to make. Do you want to come home and watch the kids or do you want to take a child to the hospital? Because your daughter has fallen off of a chair and busted her head open and will need stitches. So my plan was to go home, put my feet up, enjoy my family, and eat my dinner. And God said, no, your plan will be to love on your children in this way. And so we change our plan. I remember my first child, who I mentioned earlier, she was born. She came early. She's always liked to try to lead the way. And it was on a day, we were living overseas, 
in the Middle East and in the country of the United Arab Emirates. Actually, not Dubai, but most people would call it Dubai. But there's a bunch of different Emirates. We were living in one called Sharjah. And that day, we had to move from a place we were staying to an apartment building. And so the whole day, I spent moving furniture up to the seventh floor of this apartment building by myself. So about 8 o'clock at night, came around. And that's when the city comes to life, but I was tired. So I just wanted to lay down. And I laid there asking God, please help me rest. And I get, about 10 o'clock, my wife calls out from the, rest, the bathroom and says, Matt, I think my water's broken. And I said, no, it could not be. <laughs> but it had. And so I spent my night in the hospital having our first child. My plan was to go to sleep. God said, no, I have something else for you. Trust me. Thankfully, unlike our plans, gods are always perfect. They're perfectly timed and never reactionary. And they're never thwarted. And greater than we as his creation can, can possibly comprehend. So look at verses 19 and 20. For in him all, full, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How is Christ the fulfillment of God's reconciliation plan? Jesus is the plan redeemer for sin. This wasn't something that popped up later in creation and God said, I'm going to throw Jesus in the mix and we're going to solve the problem. No, it was his plan. He knew he was going to create us. He knew we were going to fail. And he knew he had to make a way. And he chose to do it this way. How can this be? This is not how I would have done it. That's many of the argument you'll hear from people who talk about the, this Christ thing. How can it be? This doesn't make any sense to my mind as a human. Because Jesus was always God's plan to reconcile Himself. The Scripture just continually points to that. We look in the Old Testament at Genesis. We look at the fall that happened in the garden. We look at the Exodus with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And the law that was given to them. We look at the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and how they failed. And they point to that's not enough to have these things. To the exile of the kingdoms. And then to the prophets, especially Isaiah, who points, points us to Christ. And then we look at the books of the New Testament that point not only forward, like the Old Testament, point backward and say, here is Messiah and here's what He's done. And here's why we need to live in light of that. Christ fulfilled God's reconciliation plan by how? Living a sinless life. He was crucified on the cross, buried, and rose on the third day, having conquered death and paid the penalty for sin. But I ask you this morning, who can pay the penalty for sin? No, one, no man can pay the sin for another. I can pay the penalty of my sin, but I can't pay it for you. This is because the curse of sin is upon all of us and all men and the penalty of that sin as the scripture tells us is death and it's not just death in this life but eternal separation from God the last time I checked we are going to die unless the Lord returns so that that death is the first death that place of separation is called hell and it's real our sin could only be paid by a spotless sacrifice one without blemish that the Old Testament speaks of. Perfect and holy. And Christ was that sacrifice because all the fullness, like we see in the Scripture, upon Him was all the, 
excuse me, because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell on Christ. Once again, Paul affirms that the person, that in the person of Christ, Jesus is both God and man. To the Colossians, and now in 20, the last day of 2017, to us. It is this fact that by Christ's obedience to the will of the Father, which you studied about last week in John 6, that He was the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. That Christ reconciles, himself, reconciles all things to Himself. In verse 20, making peace by the blood of, cross, of the cross. It is through Christ that those who believe in Him are reconciled. Their sentence, or what God would impart as a sentence, and that penalty that would come with that, are paid in full. Jesus restored the fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. Not that we see it yet. The last time I looked around, I'm surrounded by sin. I still have sin in my life. But it is a promised future hope. Why? Because of the sinful world we do live in, where we do battle sin every day. Christ is the fulfillment of God's reconciliation and redemption plan. He is our Redeemer. Were all things reconciled through Christ's death on the cross? It's a good question. Because it would be nice to think that when Christ died and shed His blood, that all creation was forgiven. But that's not what Scripture tells us. It says it didn't blanket salvation upon creation. Not only does that contradict the words of Christ, but many will remain, that many will remain in enmity with God or His enemies, not receiving the good news of the Gospel, by trusting in and following Christ. But once again, we can turn to, to chapter 1 of John, with verses 12 and 13, where the Scripture says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. For those who follow Jesus, this is our hope, our promise, that we have peace with God, reconciled, made right, brought into right relationship with God. Let me say that to you again. Through the blood of Christ, we have the promise of peace with God. That is why we're here this morning, to celebrate Christ. He is our head. He is the head of the church. That is why Christians throughout the world are gathering today as well, to praise the name of Jesus. In Central Asia, where my wife and I work, there are believers and these countries are not friendly to Christians. We gather here on the corner of, this, of Monroe Street here in Arlington, and we're here, and no one's going to tell us we can't gather and we can't praise God. But there are places in the world that, that that's the case for these believers, and they're persecuted. I'm thinking of Iran today and the turmoil that's there. I'm thinking of many other parts of the Middle East where Islam is, is reigns supreme. And so if you follow Christ there, you're a second-class citizen or you're persecuted, even unto death. I remember going to a fellowship in, in, a, in Kabul, Afghanistan. This was back in 2006. And we had some believers come from China. They were Christians from China who were coming to share the gospel in Afghanistan. And we got to hear them sing one of their house church songs. These were house church Christians, persecuted Christians from China, who went to Afghanistan to share Jesus. And they got up and they stood and they began to sing in Chinese. So I didn't understand it. Someone was able to translate that 
And their songs were filled with, we will shed blood, no matter what it takes. We will spread the gospel throughout the world. They understood the cost of following Jesus was not just, ah, I can show up on Sunday. The cost was real to them. And they embraced that and they followed Jesus anyway. Why would they do that? Why do we do that? It's because they had peace with God. And there was nothing in this world that could take that away. If you're not certain this morning that you need reconciliation with God, you must understand that we've all sinned. And we are all at enmity with God, which is a big word that says we are enemies. We're not just out riding around and that hopefully God will like us. It means that we are His enemies. And we will be judged by Him for our sin. But there's good news. And this is the Gospel. This is the path to God. We are all still in our sin. We who were all in our sin, alienated and hostile in mind, which we'll look at next in the passage. And now, with our sinful... Our, not only are we sinful, but we have broken God's laws and we deserve the death that He's going to give us apart from Christ. But Christ came and He lived a perfect life, one that you and I cannot live. And He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. And because of that, our sin, if we follow Him and trust in Him, is paid in full. He paid that penalty. He is holy. He is righteous. And He is just. But we are not. And so the only way we can have that forgiveness, the only way we can have that good news is to trust in Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to make that decision. And if you have questions about it, see, see me. See one of your elders at the door. Talk to the people around you. We are Christians. We love to tell you about what Christ has done. What does it mean to finish or to finish something? To complete another year or finish assignment at work or school? Maybe when I say finish, you think of uh, woodworking or the furniture you have at home or maybe these pews here. And so you put a coat on them or you polish them or you give them a brilliant shine or a desired look. My third point from the passage is from Colossians. Uh, in Colossians is verses 21 through 23. And it's that Christ is the finisher. And He's accomplished it for you. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All the forgiveness and work that Christ could do is complete. He finished the work by his death on the cross. In verses 21 through 23, Paul reminds it and affirms the Colossian believers and us who were in Christ of three things. First, that what they once were, what they now are, and what they must do. Paul explicitly reminds the Colossians of what they once were. Look at verse 21. 
They were alienated and separated from God. They were at enmity and hostile in mind towards Him, doing evil deeds. This, before they heard, received and believed in the Gospel of Christ, which I just shared. To everyone here, to all mankind, throughout all history since the fall of Adam, this is our natural state. We are not alive, but we're dead in our trespasses. What we fail to see is not only the seriousness of our sin and our sins, but we fail to consider that we are hopeless apart from Christ. You will go out into the world tomorrow or the next day. You will go to school, children, and you, or, or college students. You will go back to the world and you will see people walking around without Christ, and they're dead. But we fail to see that. We cannot do enough things, enough good things, to overcome our death, because we're already dead. And we can't work our sin off. It would be great if we could, but we can't. It requires death, and Jesus paid it. And Christ paid that penalty, and in Him there is now life, both here on earth, for us, in Him, and forever. The goal of Christ, the Redeemer, that we've read about earlier in the passage, was to take His enemies, us, unworthy to be saved, me, already judged to be dead because of my sin, and instead, He presents me, and them, and you, holy and blameless. Do you think about judgment? What you deserve when standing before the perfect, holy God, who's always been, created, all that you see, including you, God who knows you better than yourself, knows your selfishness, my selfishness, knows your shame, my shame. He knows all that you've ever done. He knows all that you've ever said. He knows all that you've ever thought. You're his enemy because of this. Maybe you're here and you think, how unfair is this God? I thought God is love and will accept me for who I am and whatever I do. Be clear this morning, our sin has separated us from God. And as for His love, He loved His enemies enough to send the Word, His Word, His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. What greater love could He have? This is what Paul tells us in verse 22 when he says what they now are through Christ. He tells them in believing in Jesus and having received and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they who were once apart from God's, from God and His enemy have now been brought near. How? Because as we were previously reminded, their sins were forgiven. Redemption through Christ's death, as we look back in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In being brought near through this redemption, Christ has crossed the finish line and accomplished the goal, God's plan. This goal was that now Christ can present you, me, as one of His own. To God, the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. How can I stand before God? It's because of the finished work of Christ. Christ has justified believers. He's paid our penalty. When I stand in that court someday, 
Christ will stand before me. I will be hidden behind Him and His blood. He made sinners clean, holy, and blameless. Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. Verse 23 tells us what our responsibility is in this. We have, and what we have as followers of Jesus. He tells us what we must do. But you look at me today and say, Matt, you just told me we don't have to do anything. Christ already did it. And the answer is, yes, you're correct. So Paul doesn't tell us to do stuff so that we can earn our salvation. Look at verse 23. He tells us through a conditional phrase, if... And he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If, if what? If you continue stable and steadfast in the faith, Christ will present you holy, blameless, above reproach. If we belong to Christ, we are His. Therefore, stand firm. Trusting in the hope of the gospel that you've heard. That you've heard today. That you've heard when other pastors have stood up here and preached. Or whenever the first time you heard the gospel and you responded to it in faith. Then, he tells us what? If, then, do this. Continue in the faith. Remain stable. Remain steadfast. Unmoved. Do not shift. Not shifting. This is the call and challenge to persevere for us in Christ as His saints. And if the saints will persevere, then the saints must persevere. The Scripture tells us that the saints will persevere. We can look throughout the New Testament. The saints will persevere. Did I tell you this morning, you must persevere. How do we do that? Look around the room. We have one another to encourage us, to hold us accountable to look at our lives, not in a way to go, look how bad you are, but to go, brother, sister, we need to do this together. You're falling down. Let me help you. Let's get back up and keep our eyes fixed on Him. We can't do this alone. We need one another. We have the church of which Christ is our head. Praise God for His church. And what about the clause that we see in verse 23 down towards the end? It says, Proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This leaves me with questions. And often, I read many places to go, what is Paul really saying here? Does this mean that the hope of the gospel has been shared everywhere? I do not believe that's what Paul's saying here. That every single individual has heard the gospel. You ask me, well, why do you believe that? Because we can believe whatever we want, right? But Paul himself continues to proclaim the gospel unto his death. And we look, at the, we look at Acts, we look at the Scripture, he's always wanting to go to Spain, which he never makes it. Why? Because they had not received the gospel. This was 2,000 years ago. But to, to this day, we still proclaim the gospel. 
We are to take the gospel to our community, to our nation, to the uttermost parts of the earth, like China, Afghanistan, Iran, hard places. Your neighborhood, hard places. Your workplace, hard places. This is and should be why you live and go to work every day or to school or anywhere. We are to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. We are in the, we are in the world to do that. This is why I don't believe that that's what Paul is saying here. His other teachings don't mirror that. This gospel message is why we support missions. I know your church supports missions. It's why we support the spread of the gospel to all nations. Those who've heard and not heard. We want to see the gospel spread and we want to see disciples raised up. And this is the reason for Paul's ministry at the very end of our passage in chapter 20, in verse 23. Paul's ministry was the proclamation of the gospel. It was central to his ministry. And in all his epistles, if you read them in the New Testament and throughout, the, throughout that, it is his central theme. We see it's his greatest arguments against false teaching, which he uses in this passage to do with the false teachings that were happening in Colossae. And he's always central and stands upon it as the key to everything. That we can do nothing apart from the gospel. The gospel and our changed life and reconciliation is from there that we can love our neighbor. It's from there that we can serve our neighbor. It's from there we can do good works. Not for our salvation, but because of the finished work of Christ. And in, Paul, in Paul's ministry, it defines his, conver his conversion on the road to Damascus as the reason he became a minister. So who was the Apostle Paul? He was the Jew of Jews. He was of the most devout. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Scriptures better than anyone. And then he persecuted the church, those who called themselves Christians. And then he's going to Damascus to persecute Christians, and Christ meets with him. And he is changed, reconciled, forgiven. So how do we know this morning that Jesus is the finisher if we can earn our salvation, then Christ died in vain. Paul confronts this very thing in Galatians 2. If, if following the law or another set of rules or procedures, which we mentioned earlier, or good works would have been enough, then Christ's death would have been unnecessary. He would have never needed to come and be a baby, grow to his 30s, have a three-year ministry, and die on the cross. It would have been completely a waste of time. But there is no other way. Maybe you're here today and you believe that there is a God, but there are many ways to heaven or to get to God. I tell you this morning, there is only one way, and that is through Jesus. He alone. I've had this conversation with Muslim friends before. Conversations about the differences between our two faiths. And there are many faiths out there. And one of the biggest things I when I talk to them about it, I share and I listen to them and they tell me about what they believe and they say, I hope, I hope, I hope that God will have mercy upon me. And my message to them is, I know, I know, I know that God has had mercy on me through Christ and I can have that promise and I can have assurance that I will be with God because of Christ, not because of me. I could never do it. I could never pray enough. I can never give enough. I can never do enough. 
Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And I put finisher. That's how I would describe that. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame that was due to me, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus bowed His head on the cross and exclaimed, It is finished. He was the finisher. Then the work of redemption was done. Nothing more is necessary or needed. It is closed, sealed, and completed work in Christ. This morning, church, what has Christ accomplished for you? As we look at this passage, we can see that in Christ, He created you. He sustains you. He has placed you in positions of authority, no matter your age, your level of responsibility, or your place in life. He leads you as part of the body of Christ, the church. He will resurrect you. He has reconciled you to God. He made peace between you and God. He brought you from alienation and evil. And He has made you His adopted children. He will present you holy, blameless, and without reproach. All of this He has done. He has finished for you, for me, wretched sinners, to make us, who are undeserving children, children of God, Christians. This is why we praise Him. He is worthy of all glory and honor and power and praise. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This morning, what are you looking to this year? And what or who are you trusting? Our passage today told us that Christ is first, above, before and above all, that He is the fulfillment of God's reconciliation plan, and that Christ is the finisher having accomplished it for you, for me. Like Paul so beautifully reminds the Colossians and reminds us today, Jesus Christ is enough. Look to Him. Look upon Him. In the hymn, Look Ye Saints, the sight is glorious. A hymn written in the year 1809 by the hymn writer Thomas Kelly. Yes, as a member of Capitol Hill Baptist, I have to get an old hymn in here somewhere. This is what we're known for. And we do love to sing them there. The hymn spurs us to look at Christ in this way. Listen to the stanzas of this. Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown the Savior, angels, crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings. In the seat of power enthrone him while the vault of heaven rings. Sinners in derision crowned Him, not mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd around Him, own His title, praise His name. And finally, hark those bursts of acclamation, hark those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. What joy the sight affords. As we look back at 2017, and as we look forward to 2018, 
Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Bow your hand pray. Lord, you are good to us, far beyond what we deserve, and we are thankful, Lord, that your word speaks to us. The letter that you wrote to the Colossians rings true to us many, many, many years later. We praise you for the tradition of Christians that has come before us, Lord, that cloud of witnesses. Lord, may we stand firm, focused on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we walk as a body of Christ, worthy of that, not twisting or shaking, not anything but steadfast and firm, trusting in the finished work of Christ. And we pray this all in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen.